All right, we're live. I always get this kind of feeling of apprehension because I don't know if I'm going to get the we're live message before my guest does. It's usually like a 50-50 shot. This time I win. <laughs> so, <Lara. laughs> hey, this is Brent Leary. First live stream of the week. I was going to say of the year, but of the week. I'm looking outside here. It's pretty gray and rainy here in Atlanta. So I'm kind of glad to be inside talking to Kieran Flanagan, who is the SVP of marketing over at HubSpot. Kieran, thank you for joining me. Yeah, uh, excited to be here, Brent. And I was thinking when you said you were from Dublin, you're from Dublin, Georgia. But after hearing your accent, the accent gave it away. That's not the case, man. No, no. I knew, I, sh I, I want to visit. I'm sure it's a great place, but uh, no, <laughs> I am from the other side of the ocean. Um, pretty distinctive accent. <laughs> yeah, that that's cool, man. I love the accent. You know, I'm used to different kinds of accents living down here. So, yeah. But thanks again for making time. Um, I've been waiting to have this kind of conversation. I'm not the only one that's been waiting to have this conversation. Wait a minute, somebody's. Wish uh, saying good afternoon from Boston. I think I know who that is. I'm gonna guess it's Bob Fagel, who guess what? He's from Boston, so that's probably what I'm saying <laughs> that. But anyway, so I've been really looking forward to having this conversation to see what's going on with HubSpot, what's going on with the podcast network, what's going on with the creator program, just how HubSpot is kind of integrating media into. Well, you've always done that, but now it's this newer form of media that I want to talk to you about and see right. what's going on. But I have somebody else who also would love to know about this stuff. So I'm getting ready to do a mashup here. <laughs> Usually, I don't say I'm Brent Leary and then send it over to somebody else on this show, but I do that on another show called CRM Players. So, Kieran, just excuse this for a second. Let me yeah, do this. No problem. I'm Brent Leary. I'm Paul Greenberg. <laughs> but this is not the CRM Players. No. In fact, I just went by the green room to get a cookie that was there, and you brought That's me what on. Happens I wasn't really When you expecting. leave your camera on. As long as your camera's on, go into that green room. You do might I, do I have any crumbs left over here? <laughs> <laughs> nah, you look pretty good. Pretty good. Okay, so Kieran, Paul and I, and of course you know who Paul Greenberg is because you guys go all the way back to five minutes ago when you first met. So, <laughs> so Paul and I have been on this kick on looking at how SaaS, particularly enterprise SaaS companies, seem to be starting the process of kind of melding into a media company, although they're still at their bones, a technology company, a SaaS company, a company that makes money off of subscriptions, not off right. of viewers. But yep. we do know the importance of grabbing the attention of people online in order to eventually potentially do business with them. Now, HubSpot, you guys have been, I mean, you're the company that content created, particularly the enterprise SaaS company content created. Some people, I still, 
I still talk to say, wow, I didn't even know HubSpot had a platform. I just thought they did content. <laughs> which i always laugh at do you, do you still get that do you hear that by the way uh you know uh, we used to get that a lot more uh prior to we did a bunch of work actually across all of the touch points uh digital touch points i think we get it a lot less we try to be really overt across our website and things like that to make sure people know we have a platform but it depends where you are in terms of your interactions with hubspot at some point you know you'll learn about hubspot if you choose to learn about hubspot some people just want to come for the content and the education. Awesome. So kind of setting the stage, you've always been known for content, but now the content over the last couple of years has gotten much more kind of almost sort of like broadcast, you know, necessary to have video looking a certain way, podcasts, certain a sounding, uh, a certain way they sound like almost sort of like those, NPR kind of podcast where it's, it's like a show, right? It's not just folks jumping on and talking. It really feels like it's some kind of a show, right? And so Paul and I talked to last year after Salesforce announced that they're doing Salesforce plus we talked to them like two days after the announcement, got a chance to kind of hear how they're thinking about doing this, how they're thinking about integrating this, some people call it the Netflix for business. Paul and I have a little bit of an issue with that. Mm -hmm. But anyway, creating this kind of content that maybe you would, you're used to getting on a streaming network, you're getting it from an enterprise SaaS company. And right. so when HubSpot, I think you bought The Hustle, was that last year? Uh, February last year. February last year. And then you put together the, Hub, HubSpot podcast network. And yep. then just even more recently, you do the creator program. It definitely feels like you guys are kind of doing something similar to Salesforce in terms of creating a more, even more media driven enterprise than right. even the company that was built on that to a certain extent. Yep. So, yep. Maybe at a high level, and then Paul, jump in whenever you want to. Maybe you could just give us a high level of why HubSpot did things like the acquisition of Hustle, of the Hustle, put together the HubSpot podcast network, and even more recently, you you talk about the creator uh, program. Yep. I know that's throwing yep. a lot at you. No, but maybe I, at a I, high I, level you could. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, you know, I might just start. Uh, I might just start. Um, maybe 15 years ago, I might just go back a little bit and to get back to where we are today. Like the way that I think about marketing is marketing rides the waves of consumer trends, right? If you think about what is marketing, well, it right, it kind of like we find consumer trends in terms of the way that consumers are interacting with new platforms or consuming content or doing these things. Um, and those shift in consumer trends causes an opportunity for marketing and then marketing kind of saturate that trend. If we go back to content, when, when did content first become very prevalent for B2B companies? Obviously, it's content's always been intrinsic to how we uh, sell or market products and services. But when did it become a core part of our marketing strategy? Well, it's really the popularity of the Internet caused a lot of people to move online. And when people moved online, they had lots of questions and they're able to go and source the information for those questions themselves. So education grew in terms of um, 
prominence when people moved online that give b2b brands an opportunity to build a real community around their products and services through educational content. So we kind of filled the void and that's what inbound marketing was so inbound marketing was uh kind of how consumers wanted to adopt and learn about products and it was right in that trend um, and accelerate in that wave i think what do we see now well education is still a really big part of how we want to market our products and services people want educational content you know funnily enough i still think even though we're kind of 15 years into that trend, a lot of companies still don't do a good, great job of that. Some companies do, but we're still, I don't think we're like at the point where we've all mastered that craft. I think we're still mastering that craft. But if you kind of look at some of the trends that we see today, uh, you know, you look at paid advertising costs, paid advertising costs have exploded in the last 18 months. Why? Because there has never been as much money raised in the US as there has been in the last 18 months. VC capital, over 40% of that capital goes straight back into Google and Facebook, increases the competition for everyone. We all moved our marketing budgets online because during COVID, we couldn't do all the offline stuff. And so that went to found its way into Google and Facebook. Um, in 2021, there were more startups created in the US than ever before, where there were a lot of startups initially go to get some of that business on Facebook and, and Google. So you see those costs to acquire people from paid advertising has doubled. That is actually going to increase, right? That is going to increase. The interesting thing about Google search, consumers search on Google, but Google is changing the way that it um, surfaces that information for people. So around... 40 something percent of all searches on desktop Google have resulted in no click at all. No one clicks on anything. They search for something. They don't click on any result. Why don't they click on any result? Because Google has done a perfect job of giving you the answer within the search result page itself through one of these knowledge boxes, through one of these other results. You don't have to click on anything. The startling thing is when you look at mobile, that number is 77%. So 77% of people will search for something in mobile and then not click on any of the blue links because they get their answer within the Google search result page. And I am going somewhere with all this. Um, by 2025, over 70, over 70% of uh, internet users will access the internet through their phone only, right? So in marketing, you have to be aware of consumer trends and how consumers' trends are going to sh shape the way that you are going to build an audience around your products and services. Kind of stepping back to media, in the past uh, two years, digital content consumption has really exploded. It's, it's increased 4x over the course of COVID. It's really become a prevalent part of our lives. That is across podcasts, YouTube, all of these different things. And so I split media into education and inspiration. Inspiration is much more storytelling. Education is much where I'm trying to solve a problem for you. I think B2B companies have mastered, or some B2B companies have mastered education. We believe that the real utopia for media is mastering education and inspiration. We believe that most SaaS companies and tech companies suck at inspiration and are not good at storytelling. And I believe that's very true today. Uh, and so we decided when we looked at what we could do, build this skill set in-house or try to, you know, uh, buy something and then build out from there, we decided the great option for us was to actually buy. So that's why we bought The Hustle. Sam Parr, the founder of The Hustle, he was a great uh, fit for us, saw the, saw the world in the same way. That team are phenomenal team. And so when we bought The Hustle, we used that skill set to start launching these other things that are really good media products and differentiated from tech companies because they're created by media first people. The podcast network that's grown to millions and millions of downloads in a very short period of time the creators program, but it's not just that. There's a lot of things we're working on behind the scenes where we're leveraging the talent that we've brought in to really learn how to do media correctly. 
I think the the problem with most SaaS brands is they try to build the media capabilities in-house, in particular the storytelling. And what they end up is doing product marketing for their products in a kind of really glossy, nicely packaged way, but it's still overtly product marketing. And that's not, we're not trying to do that. <clears throat> so I, I, you're obviously, one of the things that became obvious, I think with the, the podcast network and the um, creator program was that you guys are actually well attuned to the fact that something Brent and I talk about a lot, which is there's a huge generational power shift going on right now. And when it boils down to it, baby boomers like me are on the way out. And, um, you know, Gen Xers are starting to consider retirement. Um, millennials are the largest part of the workforce generally, but more germane to B&B are moving into a lot of the major decision-making roles, which I think will pretty much become the primary case in the next three years, maybe, um, maybe four, but right around there. And then, um, and, and Gen Zers are now, they, they basically have uh, a lot of buying power that's not based on parents' allowance, right? I think the number I saw, and I, I don't right. remember whether it was like um, North America or the globe, I just honestly don't remember, uh, was $143 billion of purchasing power among right. Gen Zers. So you have those two generations whose consumption habits when it comes to content consumption, and that, by the way, goes to even how they transact as part of content consumption are very different. And at the same time, they have impacted the older generations too, which goes to your point on digital explosion, right? Um, explosion. of. So given that, um, and given that you guys have chosen at the moment, a podcasting network, which I'm presuming, and again, I may be wrong here and correct me if I am, that it's an audio podcast we're talking about, not a yep. video not a video production of any kind. Um, so on the, on the one hand, I think that is a brilliant idea. On the other hand, I'm wondering, I know I'm probably a little ahead of myself here, but I'm wondering about future plans for other forms to go to your point, which I think is really on point is um, for providing those kind of inspirational storytelling. Cause obviously, you know, the power of video is incredible in that area too. And again, it's how the um, how the millennials consume. You know, I mean, right. obviously TikTok's a great example of that. Yeah. So how how are you thinking about that from the standpoint of let's again, it's early on, I understand, but the evolution of your networks. You guys, if nothing else, are strategic planners. So yeah, I I, I so um so some of the podcasts actually do have uh, video shows attached to them. Oh. So my my first million, which is one of the more popular podcasts we have, Sean, Sean a shout out to Sam Parr and Sean Perry. It's one of the top 10 business podcasts that actually has its own YouTube show. So it depends, uh, depended upon the podcast. It may have a YouTube. We, fun, I fundamentally believe that YouTube could be disruptive for podcasts. I think they just released, I probably get the, the numbers wrong, like 300 million creator fund or like pretty large creator fund where they will pay yeah podcasters to create video shows. Why are they doing that? Well, if you actually look at podcasts, the biggest problem with podcasts is discovery because there's no inherently the inherent discovery mechanism to be able to mass acquire an audience in podcasts. Whereas in YouTube, you have search and recommended videos and all of these things. So they could actually be very disruptive to the way we think about podcasts. We, we really want to own the places where we think uh, is going to be really important for consumers in the future. I think podcast is one of those areas. I think short form video 
is one of those areas. If you look at YouTube's numbers, much of its growth has come from stories. Where did they get stories from? Well, they just stole that from all of these other brands that were doing really, really well in stories, Instagram, TikTok. Um, and like, to your point, in terms of like the different generations, you know, the younger the generation is, the less they actually want to consume and the more they want you to get right to their point. So there's an art in being able to create short form content right. that's uh, interesting to people. And, you know, coming back to the things that I think SaaS brands want to create is this long form, glossy product marketing type content. And most people don't want to consume the content that way. So I think audio for us is big. I think short form video and video for us is big. I think newsletters definitely has um, a real part to play uh, in, in that strategy. And then for us, like our blogs are still one of the biggest drivers of our business. They continue to grow. And sometimes I'm like, wow, how does that team continue to grow the size of these blogs? But our, our blogs, when you look at the web traffic in comparison to TechCrunch or these other big media brands, we actually have bigger, uh, you know, we have more web traffic than those traditional kind of tech media brands. Wow. Um, and so they are really a sizable part of how we've continued to, to grow. All right. I want to take it in a slightly different direction. Um, you're a marketer. And you said, I think, inspiration and education or inspiration and information. Something yeah, like education what? and inspiration. Education and inspiration. Yeah. Marketers, at least some of the ones that I know of, they're not really as focused on that as much as conversion. <laughs> You know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> how do you take this stuff and turn it over to a lead that somebody can close that we can get some kind of a benefit and say this is what our close our conversion rate is we talked to the folks at salesforce around this stuff and how do you keep the traditional marketing separate enough to create the kind of content that will inspire and will inform and educate and not, uh, we need, forget all that stuff. We need stuff that converts quickly. Right. Uh, so I will, a couple of answers to this. I think data has killed marketing, right? I think data has yeah. been one of the best and worst things to happen to us. Data was great because if you go back, marketers really wanted to have a seat at the grown-ups table and be able to speak about revenue, right? That that actually was great for, for all marketers. We could go in, show our reports, and actually say, hey, these are the things that work. Look at the revenue that's attributed to marketing. Uh, great. Let's give me more budget. Give me resources. And I think that's that's an incredible – That's a, that has made be, uh, the job better for all marketers, and I think that's been great. I think the problem is that – in marketing, you can kind of either operate at the extreme, like do, do something that is very uncommon, very unreasonable, or you can do something that everyone else is doing. And what data does is it causes you to revert to the mean because I can only go on the things that have worked historically, right? I can track this thing. I can see it meaningfully works. And it's harder for me to separate my, um, you know, my work from that. I actually kind of always deviate to what works. And that is death by incremental gains because you start to like get smaller, smaller gains, but I can see the data going up. So I feel good about it. And it's hard for you to take really unreasonable bets. Now, what I kind of mean by that is like, obviously data is really, really good, but you have to have conviction about something that truly you think is going to matter in the future and believe that you will iterate and get yourself to a place where you can kind of quantify the, the results of the business. Now, in a really kind of tactical answer, you can quantify the return to the business on inspirational content by the amount of brand, you know, fake brand advertising dollars you get through the engagement and reach. So let's say I can say, well, the equivalent amount of brand advertising across unowned media properties would cost me this. 
and on our on our media properties, it's it would co- it would cost me this. So I'm getting X amount of dollars each and every month for my own brand advertising to advertise our own products. So when you see HubSpot uh, Podcast Network or you see all the media assets that we're creating, we have in product ads that are tailored for those shows within those things. So we are advertising our own products, but because you are building the media product, you can actually better contextualize the ad to that media product. Mm-hmm. So you know when did podcasting really explode for tech brands? Uh, when the serial podcast came out and everyone started advertising on it, we would much rather have the skills in-house to build that podcast and contextualize our advertising than rely on third parties to have to, uh, <clears throat> you know, kind of keep 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 advertising on. So, I think not every unreasonable bet you make can be measured in the short term. But if you don't do those things, how do you just not end up doing the same thing as every other company? Um, and I think that I think that's the problematic part for marketers. So how do you how do you? I mean, look, I, you know, when you get to the politics of all of these things, um, you have the traditional marketers, you have the traditional man. You guys are not this way, but you have traditional management teams, and they're basically saying, well, you know, the funnel and revenue objectives, and here are the here are your KPIs, and they're typically you know, the the uh, the KPIs that are, uh, let's say, implied by conversion and by, you know, revenue, et cetera, et cetera. But obviously the KPIs for something like inspiration, so to speak, because they're going to, one way or the other, they're going to, somebody's going to develop them, um, are going to be very different. I mean, the conversion and the, and the marketing funnel and, and revenue are not the foundation for any KPI for that. It doesn't mean they right. won't lead to that eventually, but doesn't matter in the immediate. So what would be, how do you measure it? And look, personally, I don't care if people never measure it. Um, I really don't. Um, as far as I'm concerned, the inspiration is inspiration and you, you'll feel it if you, you know, and I'll, I'll work with a heavy right brained approach here. Right. But, um, but given that you work for a company, how do you measure a successful result for um, something around inspiration. Yeah, you know, I, I, yeah, I can go through that. And I think one thing I'll just say is like all of the things that we've, you know, you mentioned there, uh, KPIs, make sure we have leads and dollar revenue that market is attributed to marketing. They're all things that you have to do. And I think right. success in those things earn you the earn you the ability to take bigger risks on the future. Like one of the things that if you're in a successful company, that's one of the advantages is you can do the core things that are measurable and be successful against those, but there's some amount of time you can spend on longer term uh, bets. And I think that's one of the things, you know, most marketers or marketing leaders, they kind of have to be stock portfolio managers where they can right. have some things in growth stocks, some things in, you know, value stocks and some things in, in crypto, which are likely to uh, explode and explode or it's at some point. So, I think you can think about it this in terms of this and inspiration. Like we, this is how we think about it. We have, uh, a monthly media, uh, um, you know, we are very data focused. And so I think if we can get our heads around inspiration, most brands can. So we think of our total media network reach as a reach metric. And through that meet, reach metric, we have quantifiable um, uh, direct monetization goals and dire- indirect monetization goals. So reach metric for us is like number of people viewing blogs, number of people viewing our YouTube videos, number of people downloading our podcast, number of people consuming our newsletter each and every month. Now it's a little bit more, you know, 
advanced in below, but that, in general, that's how we do it. Then we have, okay, how much direct monetization do we get of that? How many of those people directly go on to actually become a net new contact for HubSpot and all of the ways that you can do that? And we're able to measure the direct conversion. So we're able to measure the dollar return on our blogs, on our podcast, on our uh, whatever it may be. And a podcast is mostly an inspiration channel, but on the direct monetization, we can say, oh, has anyone clicked on these things and come through and actually become a conversion? On the inspiration part, what we do is we think about how, what is the total dollar value of that advertising that reached to us so we can quantify like, okay, if we had to go out into the market and pay for that amount of mo monthly downloads in terms of podcasts or monthly views in terms of YouTube or wherever, whatever the media property may be, this is how much it would cost us an average in a third-party market. So we say, okay, well, that's how much advertising dollars we have created, owned advertising dollars that we have created within our own media network. And so that's how we get to like the direct monetization, how much direct revenue have we created for the sales team, and then the indirect monetization, which is how many brand dollars have we created through our media network to be able to, you know, promote our own products and, and do all that good stuff. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Although one question it brings to mind immediately is, I mean, one thing, especially with you, you being one of the few companies that have what I'm about to describe, you have an incredible amount of, I'll call them fanboys and girls, right? I mean, you have advocates, right? And you have very yep. strong advocates who aren't necessarily the people who are generating money for you, but they yep. are generating beyond goodwill. It, and they, they fit into, let's call it indirect, you know? Um, yep. But I'm, I'm wondering, to me, they're an important, the ability to, let's say, take someone who is a loyal customer or something like that and make them into an advocate is actually a huge plus and has huge financial benefits, which are proven by a million studies um, down the road. So the question is, how do you, how do you start looking at, I mean, uh, well, let's say this, maybe it's not a question, maybe it's a comment, but it would seem to me that measuring advocacy for you, and I don't mean uh, NPS, uh, not at all, forget that. I'm yep. talking about actual measuring of advocates. Uh, yep. Measuring advocacy would seem to be actually generated through inspiration, would seem to be um, yep. a serious possibility. I mean, what do you think about that? Yeah, I, I think that's I think that's a great question. And just uh, real quick for anyone uh, who's a crypto fan and I offended with it might blow up in your face. I am a crypto uh, nut. Uh, and so I have been scorched by crypto, but also had good things happen. So I don't want to offend anyone who is uh, Web3 <laughs> uh, because I spend most of my time outside of this in Web3. Um, I think so. I think that is a great point. Look, I think community, if we wanted to still all of this conversation down and remove media and interject community, I think community is the way that you differentiate your brand in the future. And media is community, community is media. And I think the thing that you're asking is, okay, well, you have all of these listeners and all of these people who are fans of your media. How do you quantify the upside of that advocacy? And how do you upside the good things that happen when these people are consuming your content, but like you can't directly see if they're going to actually convert uh, on your um, you know, on your software and many of them never will. I have always been a believer that the larger the size of the audience around your product and services, the, the better, like just more always is better because you can leverage that in so many different ways. You can leverage that audience to create things like the creator program and build an attractive program to get people and start to scale your media content for you. You can build synergies with other brands who have audiences like yours and do co-marketing through your audience who may be more interested in buying their products and they their audience may be interested in buying yours. 
I think we are trying to, over time, get better at trying to measure the advocacy. The way I think about the evolution of content or the evolution of community for SaaS brands, you can break community into three parts or break, break community into three categories. You have community of product, community of practice, community of interests. And so community of product is historically what B2B companies have built, right? We've built communities around our products. And if you think about that linear path, you come in, you use a product, and then you become a community member. I think what SaaS brands are going to get really good at over time and tech brands over time is flipping that on its head and building a community of practice where we build communities around knowledge that people want to learn. And we come yep. in through the <clears throat> knowledge and then become a community member first and then become a, uh, a product user. And actually Web3 goes one step further where you go community customer to product. Product is the last thing you learn. You're a community of the company before you ever have to use that product. And so I think the, the big evolution over the next three to five years will be tech brands invest in much, much more in how they build these community of, of practices. I think community of interests and hobbies is much more a B2C thing, like building a community around your interests and your hobbies, where knowledge, like us trying to be better in our careers, us trying to become more knowledgeable, me trying to get certified in something to show that thing on my resume to get much, much better. I think those communities of practices are going to be intrinsic to how SaaS and tech brands grow. And I think media is you know part of how you actually do that. So let's go talk a little bit about the the whole Google situation where they've been threatening, you know, the whole going away from third party cookies. Yeah, Apple doing certain things to tweak how companies have access to customer data, putting more control in the hands of the of the consumer. It's the ramifications are rippling through. One of the things that came out of the conversation with Salesforce around Salesforce Plus was part of the reason they were doing that is it an opportunity to create a, a first party data pathway, so to speak, that allows them <clears throat> to build a community directly and not depend on these third party, you know, like the Googles and the Facebooks and all the big guys right. who a lot of folks have to go through in order to, you know, connect their messages to that target audience with what you're doing and what I think you'll see a lot more SaaS companies doing are creating these direct pathways where they don't have to go through a third party, which allows them to create, I think a more cohesive community, a more connected community. But if they get the data privacy part wrong, all that goodwill that you could create, could be gone within an instant. So how do you handle, you have all these, you know, content creators, they're not directly underneath the HubSpot umbrella. They're not HubSpot employees. They're creating a show that aligns with some of the objectives that HubSpot has. So who owns that data? Is it HubSpot? Is it those, the, the, the creators? Is it the community? How does that work? Yeah, I'll try to try to answer this. Uh, um, I, I'll try to answer this. I'm definitely not the the expert in, in all things data. The one thing I would say, I think on so on the creator program, I think some of your questions are like the, the complexities in creating a creator program where you have creators come in and you know create these shows for you, but they're not HubSpot employees. Actually, the the complexity there isn't so much on the data side because. You know, they have uh, the creators who come in, launch 
shows and really they have uh subscribers and that is through a uh a, a, mon- a podcast analytics tool that we launch all of our podcasts on so it's written in the contract when you come in those shows are owned by hubspot uh, in some form and you use our our analytics platform um i think now there may be some the contractual things uh, that i may be missing some of the nuances but the one thing i'll i'll kind of discuss is the the data side, I, I think, of the creator program, I think is less complex. The part that is much most complex is the editorial, actually. Like, because the editorial, you kill your creator program when you tell creators to come in and you have strict editorial control over what they create. Like, no, again, coming back to, like, if you truly want to do media, not, like, typical SaaS tech media, like, true media, media that's actually interested and excited and gets a ton of engagement, uh, the best people to do that are creators and creators for the most part don't want to be told what to do and they don't want to have like, hey, you can come in and have real tight um, guardrails around my editorial uh, control. And so that's the thing that we have mostly been learning about is like we actually have cr- a lot of creators who are from media companies and how can we actually work with them to make sure that we are not too hands on with the editorial control and things like that and make sure that they have the freedom to be uh, creative, the freedom to create great, great as inspirational content. And so if I was like, where, where was the, some of the biggest learnings for us as we brought on board media first creators and we launched a creator program, it's like much more around how can we build an environment for them to create their best work in a way that is still conducive to like the HubSpot brand, right? And what HubSpot want to be synonymous with and want to put out there for their audience. And that's something that I think we um did a good job off with the hustle actually like you know we didn't bring in the hustle and start telling them to create videos around our, our products um uh, we didn't really put uh, any kind of limitations a lot of limitations in what they were creating but it's definitely something we're still learning and i think that's the part that most tech brands would struggle with yeah talk about a little bit you know the marketer they love data but you're saying data is actually killing marketing which is kind of funny because marketers love data. Yeah, because but we don't want to take we don't want to take on risk. Right. <laughs> so there's I almost call this all the the rich con- uh data that you're getting capturing from all this rich content. It's got to be bugging the marketers that they can't access this stuff, or can they? How how do you how do you is there like a line? that marketers just can't cross meaning they can't get this kind this data and use it in this fashion or else it'll kind of go against some of the things that you've already talked about about building the community and also you know the whole idea of informing and entertaining yep yep that kind of thing it's got to yeah. be hard for marketers to stay over here away from all that gold yeah no like we uh we still use like so uh my point there is that we still use data to try to inform decisions what we don't try to do is tell uh not make a decision or do something because we don't have the data to inform that choice and i think that's the that's a real different that's a real uh important point in that data can tell you like uh quantitative data can tell you what has worked in the past it is hard to predict and it can predict forecast what will work in the future. 
But if it is something you have never tried before, then it's really hard mm. for it to predict how that thing is going to work, right? And that's why we deviate to the, that's why we continue to deviate to the mean because we're like, oh, well, we know how to do this stuff. It, it works. And, um, you know, we'll keep on doing the same thing. The problem with that is at some point in literally every company's life cycle, the things that you do no longer work in marketing, like everything has a ceiling. And so you iterate your way, uh, you iterate your way until that thing no longer works. And you're like, oh, like I now have to try to find something new and I have to try to find something that uh, else I can invest in. But by then it's really too late because you actually, you know, that, that process is going to take you some amount of time. Everything else starts to stagnate and that's a, a fine line to walk. So I think for marketers, it's not, hey, don't use data. Hey, stay away from data. It's, hey, data can tell you so much, but data can't tell you about some of the things that you may want to invest in in the future uh, and and make unreasonable bets in, right? It can't really, it's not a great predictor of, of the future, especially if there's no historical context for you doing that within your company before. Okay. Let me ask you, uh, this is a, it kind of goes to what you were talking about, about, you know, HubSpot, um, the HubSpot brand still being the overarching, you know, uh, the overarching framework around, the podcast network and so on, but not necessarily the individual podcast. So what happens, this sort of hypothetical scenario thing. So let's take, what's the name of that show? My First Million or something? My like First that? Million, yep. Yeah, so let's take that show and it generally falls well within your you know, range of, um, yeah, this is exactly the kind of thing we like. Then he does a show and at one point in the show, he does something that falls way out of your range. Um, and then he continues the rest of the show. What happens when, uh, first of all, I guess my question is, are you ever going to even know that? Meaning, are you monitoring enough to know it? Secondly, if you do know it, do you just sort of let it slide, given that everything else is okay? Or do you talk to the guy? What do you do? I mean, I'm yep. just... yeah. Yeah. No, I think it's a great question. Uh, first of all, we will know. Like we produce the shows, so that should never that shouldn't should never go out. All the right. shows are like we built a production team. Um, we do have red lines, like and creators are very aware of them. So I'm not saying that you can just this is the thing that you have to find the balance between. There are there are going to there are going to be clear things if you're a tech company that are just no no you know no go areas right we we don't we it's not in our nature to disparage competitors we just don't do that right. we don't we don't yes. like doing it we don't want to do it and we don't agree with it if someone was doing that in one of our shows that would be a no go area and we would have to make sure that that is edited out and talk we talk to the creator we make the creator aware of our editorial guidelines up front and so like there's pretty good synergies and so we don't bring on established podcasts that really fall at side or, or established creators that fall outside of those guidelines we we've just launched eight new podcasts um as part of our creator program like net new shows and again we will work with them to make sure they know of our editorial guardrails our editorial guardrails are as small as we can make them because again you have to get the balance right between the freedom and the uh, ability to create great shows but staying within what you brand your brand will be known for if someone does go at those outside of the guardrails yeah for sure like we we talk to that person we make sure they understand why that was and we would um we we would actually you know depend on how far outside of that is we would take the show down we would leave it in if it was only just something small uh, it really right. depends like you know where it falls within that range right. of things that we don't we don't agree with okay but th that like that is definitely something that we are still learning and i think it's the i think it's the hardest thing for a tech brand to figure out how to do most media people, uh, and I've interviewed a lot as part of growing at the media team, 
uh, have real reservations about working for tech brands because they think their work is going to be stifled. They're going to create r- crappy stuff around the product and they don't want to do it. Hmm. Going to end with a question from our buddy Anand Tucker. How will the psycho- psychology of content consumption change in the next five years? That's a big question. The psychology of content consumption. Um, I'm unsure how to answer that. I can, I, I can, I can, I think like in terms of content consumption, like what are the consumer habits I see? Um, I think that people are gravitating much more towards um, smaller communities that are very knowledgeable and experts within topics. And sometimes they are companies and sometimes they are creators, which is why you see creators become such a giant part of the media ecosystem. I think, as I said, people like, even if you look at, I like, I really like like using Twitter over the past two years as an example of a platform that has totally changed in terms of how content is created on there. And people have become much more better and much more, and why they got better because they got much more engaged over COVID people became much more uh, goal oriented around growing their audiences and the quant and the quality of the content got much better. And it's really a lot of the Twitter content has replaced blog content and again, it's another example of these Twitter threads. Why would they be replacing some of the blog threads? Well, it's it's in a platform that has already made audience, but it's also much quicker to read those Twitter threads in many blog posts, whether you agree or disagree with that's a good form of content. That I think you're starting to see the shift towards how do we get the information in a shorter amount of time? And I think the other uh, consumer trend that I am really um, interested in and watching how it evolves is the blend of traditional business content with pop culture. And so you see this a lot in finance, like finance has become totally pop culture, like orientated. I think business is going to go the same way. And we talked about it earlier around the different generations and the type of content they like, and that's going to really uh, shake up, you know, again, we're betting on the future. And I think if you are still creating the same kind of content in three to five years, uh, you're going to be outside of the realm of what's interesting. And we we believe to be part of that and to be a leader within that, the kind of journey needs to start now, if not before. Preaching to the choir. Cool. I, uh, you can blame Jim Cramer for that financial yeah, 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 mashup. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> I remember watching him 15 years ago. That dude's the same then as he is now. Right. It just seems like everything else kind of caught up to him. Caught up to him. I agree. Yeah. I think it's a great way to look at it. Wow. Kieran, this has been a really great conversation. Thank you so much for joining. I was going to say joining the CRM players, but technically you really haven't done that yet. So we'll have to have to have you on at some point on the, on that show. And then you'll see. It's really no cool. <laughs> oh boy, you're getting a thank you from from Anand, and cool. thanks from us too. We really enjoyed this, and we'll definitely be circling great. back around because we have an idea uh, for something that we're doing, and I think you'd be great to be a part of. Have another really conversation like totally this. Cool. If you're up yep. for it, yep, I'd love to. Awesome. So I was about to say, <laughs> I know, um, Brent Lear. <laughs> but don't, I'm not going to say that, although I am Brent Leary. Come back Thursday. We are doing the CRM players. 
and it's a special CRM players. The venerable Paul Greenberg will tell you why. Yeah, well, oh, well, I, is he here? <laughs> yes, I thought he, he was at the players' studio He's in right disguise. now. taping. <laughs> well, we've got this really is an unusual one. This is by uh, a lucky for our industry. This is the 25th year of and uh, 25th anniversary of CRM magazine. And that is, I think everyone who knows CRM knows that has been a significant influence throughout the entire history of the magazine. So we are having uh, a number of people um, among them, the current publisher, Bob Fernickes, um, uh and some of the old timers who had been on it and a couple of the current staff to talk about the 25 years and the history of what's going on in CRM, what's going on with, what's going on with the magazine, reminisce, storytell, um, which will be most of it, I'm sure. <laughs> most of us will just be telling yeah. stories, but um, it should be a really good time and it's a really good episode. So that's Thursday, 3 p.m. East Coast time. We will see you then. Thanks again for checking us out. And thanks to Kieran for hanging out with us. Lots of great cool. stuff there. Thank you. Thank you.